Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Tony D'Aquino is an Australian filmmaker who made his directorial debut last year with The Furies, now streaming on Shudder. The Furies is a bloodbath, daylight slasher extravaganza with strong nods to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but with a modern twist. In this conversation, we hear all about Tony's director origin story, the making of The Furies, and major lessons learned from his first movie. Now, without further ado, here is Furies director, Tony D'Aquino. So I'm curious how you approach the overall look of the movie, because it looked very distinctive. And again, it did feel like some of those older slashers, but didn't feel throwbacky, is, is what I keep coming back yeah. to. Is, you know, yeah. It felt very much it had its own style and signature look. So how did you approach the look of the movie? Well, I guess a lot of the look, I did want it to look like those um, 70s movies, which were kind of... A lot of times when you used to, we used to watch them on, I guess, VHSs where they were bad transfers and all looked a bit like from faded film stock and a bit scratchy and horrible. Um, so there was that. And also the look was set a lot by the location we found. So that location the film set in, the script was originally at a different location and we had to film in Canberra, which is um, the capital city of Australia, but it's sort of in the country in the middle of New South Wales. So um, someone pointed to me, pointed me towards the location where the town is, and that's actually a real sort of goldmine town that's been left abandoned, and it's in the middle of that weird ghost gum forest. So that, we kind of took the start of our look from there to make it look that kind of, it does, uh, the location does look like it does in the film. It's very much quite washed out and kind of a very muted colour palette, so that kind of set a lot of the look. Oh, that's cool. So you focus the overall look and cinematography based on the location and based on the location, yeah. Because yeah, we had, had a very small budget, so we couldn't um, 
didn't have a lot of lights, or so we really had to work with what we had. Uh, we're, really yeah, again, we we're very lucky to find that location. Yeah, it was a great, great location. I was very curious as to That's how great. you found it. It was a ghost town. Well, it was. Um, it used to be there was a gold. There was a gold mining town there in the eighteen hundreds, and then in the seventies, someone built, recreated the town authentically as a sort of tourist attraction that went bankrupt, and then they just kind of walked away and left everything there, and it's been kind of rotting in the bush for 50 years. So it's almost like an aged backlot that's just been sitting there waiting to be used. So wow. it was amazing to find. Yeah, how did you find it, first of all? Uh, there was a production manager who was on the – a pr producer who was on the film early on who left um, before we got into production, and she pointed me towards it to go and have a look at it. Nice. Suggested I look at it because originally it was all set – in kind of an abandoned farmhouse and the outbuildings rather than the town. So, and the, I mean, the town's much better than that. Very cool. Yeah, it was such an amazing location. And I'm sure once you landed there, once you got to the location, you probably re I would imagine you let the location dictate the script and, you know, actions and, th and things like that. It seems like the location was very much a character. And it's really pretentious when people say that. But in your case, it seems like, yes, the location was very much a character. Oh yeah! As soon as I as soon as I found it, I start I, and as soon as I found out we could um, were able to use it, I rewrote the script entirely to set it all there because yeah. it just adds production value as well. So yeah, it was like looks like a set that's been built for us specifically for the film. So it gets that's with a low budget film, you're always looking for free production value, and that added really hundreds of thousands of dollars to our film. Yeah, and the idea that you shot it all—it seemed like you shot most of it in natural light, right? Yeah, it's almost entirely natural light, except for those few scenes that are obviously in sets or in interiors in houses. It's all natural light. We only had we shot yeah all daytime, so we were very lucky. We didn't get any rain. We only had twenty day a twenty day shoot, um, no rain cover. So if it rained, we would have been in trouble. But it didn't rain at all for the whole shoot. So yeah, we did pick the time when there was um, tradition. You know, it looked at the weather patterns, and it was the um, lowest rainfall period to shoot in, but we were still very lucky. That's great. Yeah, and there is something very eerie about broad daylight horror, you know, particularly mm -hmm. with the kinds of effects and scenes that you guys had. Yeah, and also I guess I, I do always wanted to do that anyway because I was – The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite all-time movies. Me too. So, and that's all, you know, pretty much all daylight and it's kind of terrifying. So I wanted to kind of mimic that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, it, it really made me feel like Texas Chainsaw in a big way, but not, it, again, it just didn't feel like it was throwback -y at all. It just felt like, oh, yeah, I remember what this feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the the effects in this movie were amazing. And there's one scene in particular that you keep winning Best Kill Awards for, which uh, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. But if you want to spoil it, feel free. But uh, it was it was pretty amazing and really effective. And I remember I, I heard in, an, in a previous interview with you that, that when you first saw it, you were shocked at how real it was and you were almost hesitant about using it because it was – or you were shocked at how realistic and you were concerned that you perhaps went too far. Was that the case? Yeah, yeah it was because I had written it in the script. And um, so I wanted, it's one of those things I guess I'd write, I'd written it but I didn't know how we were going to do it or how Larry Van Dynhoven, who's our prosthetics designer – was going to do it, and that um, that effect happens on the it was the second day of shooting. We filmed that, so it was our first prosthetic effect. 
So really up until then, wasn't sure how well everything was going to work because we hadn't had much rehearsal time at all. Um, so when we did film it, uh, it was I was I was ecstatic. I was super excited, but at the same time, yeah, it was so realistic in real like on location. It looked, it looked real. So and I did think I had gone too far and maybe it wasn't going to be too much for audiences, but I was always going to use it. So and then. Um, and the first cut in the edit to the editor cut it quite cut it down quite short, I think, because he was a bit shocked by it. And then I just went in and just made it as long as we possibly could because if it's going to be there, you might as well have it there. You like, might as well show it off. Put it all out there, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we're in this incredible new time period for horror directors where you don't really have to care about the MPAA anymore. And I had this conversation with uh, Damien Leone who did Terrifier. Horror directors can do what they want now. You don't have to worry about cutting away and too much blood or anything. Yeah, yeah, because I think because um, of streaming, I guess you don't have to worry too much and the ratings have shifted a little bit. It does. Um, the, I think the excessive gore in the film did knock us out of a couple of festivals that we were kind of shortlisted for, but apart from that, um, yeah, otherwise it hasn't affected the markets that it will take it or anything like that. So, But definitely um, streaming's helped that as well. Yeah, well, that's great. So how did the movie come about to begin with? I mean, how did you t- – I heard there was a story where you entered a competition in Australia, but from there, how did you take it from script to screen? How did the whole thing come together? Uh, so <clears throat> Screen Canberra ran a program called Accelerator Pod where you were, people were invited to come along every number of weekends and pitch ideas to a panel, which was the distributor, Odin's Eye, a um, field marketing expert and a script advisor, Carol Segas. So you pitched ideas to them every weekend and they would – basically vote on which one they thought of your ideas that you pitched was marketable and could be a film. And at the end of that process, they picked 10 projects to go through the first draft. And then from the first draft, they picked four to potentially go into production. So mine was the one that um, first one that came out of that process. The idea, I kind of always had the had the vague idea in the, of, of doing the Furies in my mind. I didn't really have a script before I went and did the program. Um, because the pictures were just basically one-line, log-line pictures. So I'd already, I had um, two other projects that I had scripts for that I pitched, but you had to pitch three ideas every weekend, three new ideas. Wow. So it was pretty full-on. So And I just – so I had two and I just needed another one, so I just kind of threw that one in, the Furies in. I thought it was too crazy and no one was really going to like it because it was a bit too – was so specific to my passion, you know, that I love – slasher films and the people on the panel weren't really fans of that sort of those sort of films so I didn't they'd go for it but they went for it straight away which was great wow. so um, so during the program I the, the one line pitch became a one page treatment and then uh, so and also the competition was um, very specific they wanted a genre film so they did want horror thriller or crime movies or family films particularly, but it had to be able to be done for a one and a half million dollar budget. So it's one and a half million dollars Australian, which I guess is about nine hundred thousand US. So it was quite um, a specific brief. So from there, I went to a, 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 just went to writing drafts, and my my film was the first film that was ready, I guess, to take the day green to go into production. Well, that's great. Which is great. It was very exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. So this was your first feature, right? It's my first feature. I went to uh, graduated film school in 94, 95, 
and had done a lot of um, music videos and TV commercials, a few short films, some TV, but had been, yeah, trying to get a mostly horror films up for a number of years. And it's just, I mean, as in anywhere, it's a tough, tough thing to do. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so this is my first feature. So any big filmmaking lessons that you – because you, you, you'd been doing a lot of directing before this movie came about, but were there any big, huge director lessons that you learned making this movie? I had done a lot of directing, but I was uh, quite rusty because um, I'd done anything for a while, for a few years before I'd, done, I'd started on this film. Um, big lessons, um, you can never do enough preparation. <laughs> we had a very short um, – and this is not unusual, I guess, for low-budget movies, a very short uh, pre-production, a very short rehearsal time, like really maybe one-week rehearsal with the actors and with all the stunt team. Um, but um, more preparation time would have been better if you can get it. And it is, you have to be, it is exhausting shooting a film. So during the four weeks shooting I was probably averaging, I guess, three to four hours sleep a night. Yeah. Just because of the uh, the way we're, we're shooting all during the day, but then because of the tight budget, there was I constantly having to rewrite and, and shift things around all the time, and then watching rushes, and it's just a kind of it's a very ends up being very long days to be prepared for that. So you clearly are a big connoisseur of slasher movies from the 70s and 80s. And everybody's seen Texas Chainsaw and Halloween and, you know, Friday the 13th. But were there any lesser known slasher gems that have been really, really influential on you? Listen, I, I, look, probably one, you know, I mean, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably the biggest influence on me because when I saw that it really did affect me, I was kind of... Um, because it wasn't released in Australia until 1984. It was quite late. And wow. I was, and came out when, during the video boom here. And it was um, quite traumatising to see that film the first time. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially on a tatty old um, VHS tag because it looked even more real than right. if it was even well cleaned up. Um, lesser known slasher films. I mean, all the usuals, I guess, The Burning and um, Halloween um, and a whole wave of slasher movies, which most people would have heard of. I don't – it's hard for me to know which ones are lesser known because I've seen yeah. – they're so familiar to me. Um, yeah, I've, I'm sorry, Nick. I can't no, no problem. No problem at all. Um, well, yeah. yeah. If they, if they oh, come back to lessons, um, casting is super important because you really have no time. Uh, I mean, a lot of directors say this, that it's 90% of the film is getting the casting right, and I, I certainly agree with that. If you can get the right cast, and especially the right lead, because like with Ellie Dodds, she's on set pretty much every day. She's right. on, kind of on screen constantly. So just getting that cast right is um, super important. So as much time as you can take doing that and as much um, talking to the actors you're thinking of, thinking about using and just having conversations and make sure you, you get along personally as well because you're going to be so working so closely together in such an intense kind of high-pressure environment. Yeah. Yeah, a couple notes on that. I think when it comes to horror movies, it's really important for actors and actresses to be able to convey fear really well. And I feel like if they're not, then that could blow the entire movie right there. So considering sure. all of the very frightening elements of this movie and the multiple actresses that you had 
being terrified pretty much throughout the course of the movie. Were there any keys to working with actors in terms of finding ways for them to accurately convey fright and fear? Um, I think it's really just being uh, very clear about what the scene's about. So, and um, being clear early on in pre-production that everyone knows they're making the same movie. Um, and also, so that's what I found. And we really didn't have much, again, because we are low budget, all those scenes are really one or two takes. We didn't have a lot of takes, a lot, as I said, a lot of rehearsal time. Yeah. So really just before we start to shoot, be clear with the actors about what each scene's about and what each moment's about. And um, you can't really make someone be scared, I guess, but mm-hmm. um, so then it's up to them. I think also importantly the um, shooting on location really helped for that because we are shooting in that environment and having the uh, – and again using practical effects. So when they are facing off against the killers – the killers look like, as they do on the film, they look like they're in real life. It's not yeah. a CGI effect, which I imagine makes it, it certainly makes it easier for the actors. So um, that's what I think. But, yeah, um, most importantly, being clear what the scene's about and what's going to happen in the scene. Yeah. So uh, you touched on practical effects. I loved the the effects in this movie were great. I mean, not just the the main kill scene that you're getting all the awards for, but all the effects were great, and the masks were beautifully done. How important was it to you to really? This feels like you not only focused on making practical effects, but it feels like a little mini celebration of practical effects. How important was it for you to do things practically? Yeah, I always wanted to do things practically, just because um, again to reflect on those 70s, 80s movies. But also um, I just think it looks better. It, looks, it does look more realistic. There is uh, practical effects have a bit of a, a kind of weight to them and a little bit of just the physics, the, the CGI. I think yeah. you can get it with CGI, but it's super expensive and most often it doesn't look right at all and always looks a little bit fake. And I think if it is CGI, often you're – looking for where it does look fake. Mm-hmm. But with practical effects, you tend just to go with it. And also with practical effects, any um, often the mistakes, there's always going to be mistakes with practical effects, but they often work in your favour mm. and make look more realistic rather than more fake. Really? So, yeah. So with the scene that you're talking about wins all the awards, the um, prosthetic in that scene it did split and it did come apart. Oh god! And what happened because of that? If you watch this, you know this. There's a bit where the um blood starts dribbling out of her mouth. Um, that's a mistake because the prosthetic broke. So if you did that in CGI, you probably wouldn't get that. You probably oh, wouldn't wow. get it doing. That. So and then, and that made it look more real. That, that CGI that this prosthetic that the latex split and the blood drip looked like it was coming out of her mouth. Oh my so, god! So those little things really help. I think happy accidents. Yeah. Yeah. But it is just the the weight and the physicality of the practical stuff that looks more realistic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, my theory about why we're seeing so much nostalgia for the 80s is because people miss practical effects. They miss feeling the actual creatures and effects and car crashes. When everything was done practically, people believed it. And now you walk away from these CGI fest movies. And I 
don't get me wrong, I enjoy them. They're fun. But um, the effects just yeah. don't last. I mean, in the past, you would see a kill. You would feel that kill. But nowadays, when there's CGI blood or CGI limbs flying off, you just it goes in one eyeball and out the other. You don't feel it, you know? It's just your subconscious does not believe it, whereas with practical, it still works for me every time if it's done right. Yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it? I don't know what it is. And I think also possibly that using practical effects, it limits what you can do with the camera as well. Like you have to, there's a very, you can only shoot a certain way to get those effects to work. So I think that might be might be a bit of it as well. Whereas yeah. CGI can kind of go with the camera, which tends to make things even more unbelievable. Whereas mm-hmm. if you were doing practical, like the way you shoot it's quite specific and then it just feels, I guess, as you say, subconsciously, you kind of are a little bit registering the work that's, there's someone there doing that kind of that kind of handcrafted, um, unrepeatable thing about yeah, it. Yeah, your your eyes just believe it. You know, they just yeah. they do because it's got the weight to it. And I don't know, there's something about it. I don't think CGI will ever get to the point where you believe it nearly yeah. as much. I mean, the CGI is great because you can tidy things, cut tidy things up, and kind of right. I guess enhance things a little bit. But um, but yeah, but overall the. The practical prosthetics is so much better. Yeah, I think it's all about the blend. You know, I think build as much as you if you have the budget and the resources, build as much as you can on set and dress everything up digitally as yeah. as needed. I feel like that's where we're headed for sure. Yeah. And I think also going back to the actors with the fear again, it is good to have those things on set, like to have a killer dressed up on set for the right. actor to um, to play off. It, it does certainly help. Right, instead of a, a CGI monster or something, yeah, 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 yeah. and especially yeah. the way those masks looked. I mean, damn, they're super frightening. So there must have been some real actual fear on set. Yeah, yeah, How and also because you- with the way the way the masks were made, the um, the stunt people would come on, someone would come in at the start of the day before anyone else arrived to get made up. So by the time the cars get there, they're already all in costume and they have to stay in those masks for the whole day. Once they're on, they can't come off. Ooh. So, which is kind of, kind of, I guess, an interesting thing as well. Like you only see those actors, those, those stunt people in their masks for the whole day on set. Oh, wow. So you don't actually see the real face. So you can't, hum- the, the, uh, the, uh, the actors couldn't humanize the killers because they didn't know, they didn't see their faces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's like good method directing. Yeah. <laughs> The movie felt like it had, on a certain level, some social message behind it. The the final girls felt a little bit more empowered. And I remember you talking about how you did not want this to be one of those kind of sexist movies where the women are very weak and they, they're they not able to fight back and whatnot. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, that was a great thing about the slasher films, which kind of... Um, and then it was problematic towards the end. I guess the early slasher films, like particularly like Halloween and even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, had very strong female characters. And then towards the end of the, the slasher boom, as it, they did tend to get a bit more um, a bit more exploited with the female characters. So I just wanted to go back to this, to the way they those films had started, you know, Halloween and Black Christmas, where the, the female characters were very strong, and make sure that was. Um, a message in the film. So, um, so entirely female cast, not have any men there at all was, was what I wanted to do and have them all behave realistically. Right. Yeah. That was, um, was my intent. So how did, um, Shudder come along? Uh, Shudder, the film was shown at, um, at AFM 
American film market mm-hmm. in I think uh, 2018 American film market. So they bought it from there. So it was bought from because the Odin's Eye, who were the international sales agent, were on board from the start. Mm-hmm. So as soon as the film was finished, they started taking to film market. So I know Shutter bought it at, from AFM. I think I'm pretty sure. Okay, got it. Did it get any yeah. sort of a theatrical other than the um, than the film festival? Because I would imagine this is a great movie to watch in an audience, with an audience. Yeah, it got most apart from the film festival, it had a very short theatrical run in Australia, and which um, the problem is with these with low budget films, there is no money for um, advertising, so that was a bit of a it didn't really do very well here. I got a short theatrical. Nowhere, actually, nowhere else. No, <laughs> so, <laughs> only festivals. So, it, it, you know, it was in the um, in Germany. They have their traveling traveling film horror film festival, which goes mm. to a number of cities. So, it did get a quite an extended, I guess, theatrical run there. But apart from that, it's all straight to Blu-ray and streaming. Okay, got it. Um, a lot of low-budget films because there is no money for advertising. You're trying to compete against, you know, the big blockbusters, and there's less screens nowadays, so it's almost impossible. Yeah. Well. The movie seemed like it was pretty well publicized. I mean, in the horror community, a lot of people were talking about it. I think that, I mean, the kill scene definitely was a big thing that people were talking about. So how did you approach marketing the movie after after it was made? Yeah, I mean, for me, that's really, that was really all that out of, entirely out of my hands. So I didn't have to worry about trying to sell it. Okay. I guess that, no, I know I go from two film festivals, that's, a, that's a, an issue for a lot of filmmakers. Once they've made a film, trying to find a sales agent that will take it on and, and um market it but because odin's eye wrong from the start i didn't really have to worry about that so mm-hmm. it was great for me then i could just when it came out i could just you know go go to the film festivals and enjoy it and not have to have the pressure of worrying about um was anyone going to want want it and take it on board and try and try and market it and sell it right. so odin's eye are there from the start taking to all the film markets and spruiking it got it yeah so last yeah. few uh questions here well first of all with all this um quarantine time a lot of people are binging books and movies and series have any recent fun discoveries that you've had either in uh movies or series or books um, movies i watched a film i watched uh what did i watch on amazon recently the last shark have you seen that no <laughs> uh, i think it was banned for a long time it's uh, enzo castellari's you know the italians in the 80s did all these uh, kind of um ripoffs of hollywood movies right so the last shark is a kind of Jaws ripoff, and that's it's pretty fun. Um, <laughs> it's on Netflix. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh, it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. Yeah, so that was cool. I watched last night. I watched Underwater. I enjoyed that. What would you think? I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I got quite a few bad reviews, but I thought it was great. I really I enjoyed it. I did not understand the bad reviews at all. No, no, it's really good. It's like it's full on from the. I didn't expect it to be so. Like, there's no messing about. It's like straight into it, isn't it? Right from mm-hmm. the start. Right? Yeah. And the creatures were beautiful and there was a lot of suspense. I mean, it was well done. I, I hated it. I luckily got to see it in a movie theater. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a shame that it got so panned. I hate seeing that happen to horror movies, yeah. particularly when they get huge budgets. Yeah. It's very, it's very strange. Um, what else I watched recently? First Love, the Miyake film. The new, have you seen that? No, no. That's on, um, I'll watch that on Voodoo, I think. That's okay. really good. Um, cool. What else? What else? You binging any true TV fiction, shows? True Fiction I quite liked. What? 
True Fiction. Don't know that one. It's about a uh, woman who goes to work with an author to help him as his assistant. To He's a horror writer to help him write his new. So it's quite low budget. It um, came out last year. Who directed it? Um, can't. Brandon Croft. So that was quite good. Yeah. Cool. Um, I mean, tons of stuff. I'm sure like you, I just kind of watch a movie a day really. So yeah. <laughs> it's hard to. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at the Furies as the finished film, what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? I don't necessarily mean money. It could be time, energy, resources, but what would you have invested in more and what would you have invested in less? Invested in more. Um, Yeah, uh, time would have been – I would have – like to have had more time, which is great now because I have got time for the next project to um, think about stuff. So, uh, for instance, even though we had a, we we um, the masks and all the effects turned out great, I, I didn't have that much time with Larry Van Dyneheuvel, so we really were racing around the clock to get everything done. So I've, I'm speaking even already about the next project, so we're months ahead to, so we can start thinking about stuff. So there's we're really in pre 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 production with him. Oh wow. Working on the next film, um, time. Um, I would have loved more shooting time. We only had twenty days. I really could have used, you know, we had four weeks. Could have used five weeks. Would have been much better. There was a lot, quite a few. Um, there was a big sequence that was cut out of the film. We just didn't have time to shoot it. Um, which we, yeah. And I would have liked to do a couple of reshoots on some scenes, mm-hmm. which we didn't have time. For. So yeah, another. Another more time in pre, more time shooting. I'm sure that's. I'm not alone. There's probably every director says the same thing for that. Yeah. But yeah, um, less time, um, less time stressing. I, I, you know, it's, it's you can waste a lot of energy stressing about things during the shoot. Mm. Um, so especially when you finish the day and get back home and kind of replay the day in your head spend a lot of time worrying about what you've done, should have done or could change. So less time doing that and more time about more, just less time doing that because it just chews up energy. So, mm. and it's too late. already. So it's no point worrying about it. So um, is it accurate to say just less time stressing, more time actually enjoying the process, which would give you more time little- enjoying the process. Yeah. yeah. So, which I did like the, the first week, I guess, because I hadn't directed for a long time was, um, really just getting up to speed and getting into the groove. Um, so I did – so after the first week, I was able to enjoy the process more, which was fantastic. But that first week was kind of a bit too too much time worrying. Yeah. Stressing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But, um, but as far as um, spending um, the budget, yeah, we had – we, we, we spent what we called in the right pla- in the right places. We didn't really go make any mistakes there at all. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think I feel like a DP is one of the most important investments, and it seems like you guys definitely invested there because the movie, again, the camera work and the way it looks is it looks so beautiful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, again, I guess that's a good a lesson for um, as far as to, as far as um, filmmaking goes, because Gary Richards, I've known for. Gee whiz, I guess since 2000, so I've known him for 20 years. And we've worked together on music videos and um, TV commercials a lot over the years. And we're 
very good friends. So um, it's a thing about when you're starting out is everyone you meet and you work with is, is you're always looking for people to work with in the future, I think. You're always looking to build up relationships with people because, again, because you work on a film, it's so stressful and so um, intense and so high pressure to have people that you've worked with in the past that you know each other and you have a shorthand language about stuff and it just makes things easier and faster and um, and you can be at ease with each other. So um, just to um, collaborate as much as possible and work with people as much as possible just so you can build up that team that you can call on when you need them is a, is a great lesson. Yeah. Well, cool. cool. Um, are there any books or resources that were particularly helpful for you as a filmmaker, either from a creative perspective or a career perspective or a writing perspective? Um, look, I've read a lot of um, script writing books over the years, and to me they're not really that useful, I guess. They're, um, they don't help, I guess they don't help you write. They help you look at if something's not working, you can refer, reference them to try and fix a script or see mm. what's wrong with your script. I did read a great book recently called Into the Woods by um, – let me have a look. That was, that's, that's a, um, that's a, was about script writing, which is really good. Um, and then a lot of lot of director books. So um, Hitchcock on Hitchcock's great. The yeah. Truefire Hitchcock book's fantastic. Um, um, direct, yeah, just interviews with directors. Um, so there's some really good directors' commentaries on Blu-rays. That are, you know, David Finch's are great um, to to listen to. So to um, to 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 check those out. Um, books and just watch a lot of films. Yeah, I guess is the is the key as well. Watch as many films as you can, and you know, watch them repeatedly to see what's what's making them work and what it is you like about them. And, um, it's key for me, yeah. Yeah, I do that, and I take copious notes on each movie. It's, like, obsessive. You know, I have them all in every note. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Tony, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And what uh, what is what are you working on next? I'm working on a sequel. So, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it just started kind of this week, really. Last week, this week, working on a sequel. Um because there's been some interest, so uh, working on that, hoping to have getting that um, into shape, ready to go when we can walk outside our houses again. <laughs> well, Tony, thank you again. This is a real pleasure. Any parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? I just think, I guess another lesson is it's all about persistence. So it's just have to, um, some people get lucky and get their first film made early on in their careers. I mean, for me, I, you know, as I said, I graduated from school in 94, so it's been a long time to get my first film up. But it just, yeah, it's about persistence and passion. Just keep keep, keep trying, yeah. And always try and, you know, you can only make the film that you want to see, really. Yeah. So not make the, try and make the film that you think other people want to see. It's all about the film that you want to see. So for me, With the Furies was a film that, um, always a film that I would have loved to have seen no matter who made it. So that's um, what I think. But, yeah, persistence can be hard and it can be um, heartbreaking because you get close. I got close a few times in the past and then things fall apart at the last moment. But just um, keep going. Yeah. 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 Right. Especially now, you know, we've kind of difficult times. Just um, keep going, keep riding. Yeah.
Great. Well, Tony, on that note, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thanks, Nick. All right. So here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Tony D'Aquino. Number one, prepare, prepare, prepare. For low-budget movies, when time is money and every single minute counts, you have zero time to think through decisions on set. And therefore, you have to have pre-decided everything as far ahead of time as possible. This means taking the time to review worst-case scenarios during pre-production so you can anticipate whatever could go wrong on set and have backup plans at the ready. This is a critical lesson that all of Roger Corman's disciples carried with them, and it's amazing major lesson that Tony learned while he was making the Furies. Furthermore, on the topic of decision-making, there's a real condition called decision fatigue, whereby your brain becomes incapable of making decisions after it's reached a certain decision threshold. According to neuroscience, making decisions is the most cognitively taxing function your brain can perform. So the more decisions you make throughout the course of the day, the less effective you'll be at making decisions later on. So be conscious of your decision budget and save that brain power for the really hard things that will come up while you're shooting instead of on the small details. This all comes down to preparation. So make sure you are overprepared every single day. Listen to my conversations with Joe Dante and Roger Corman for more about the importance of preparation. Number two, 90% of the film is casting. Tony spent a lot of time, effort, and energy on casting the Furies because he knew that in order for his horror film to work, the acting had to be excellent. Of course, horror has a schlocky side with very cheesy acting and has a reputation amongst outsiders for not requiring good acting. This isn't true. You need to get great actors or else your movie will fall flat. Nobody will care about your characters and it will not be scary. Fear is an extremely complex emotion to display on camera. And in a horror movie, it's one of the most important emotions for your actors to get right. So double down your focus on casting. Also, spend time talking to and getting to know your actors before you cast them because you'll ultimately be in some very high-pressure scenarios with them and you'll need to know that you can get along and that they're reliable. Eli Roth will often speak to other directors who've worked with the actors he's considering casting to find out about their conduct on set. This is an extremely simple but important thing to do. Eli Roth also mentioned that in terms of having a harmonious set, it's best to cast actors who are either brand new to acting or notably famous, as anybody in between will fuck your movie up. (laughs) This is a lesson that Umberto Lenzi told Eli personally, so consider all of this when casting. Number three, mistakes can be good. Okay, going to start this off with a semi-spoiler alert. There is an extremely brutal scene in The Furies when a woman's entire face gets cut off by an axe. It's filmed in broad daylight, and it's so frighteningly real that it shocks even a weather horror fan like myself. It even won Fangoria's Best Kill Award last year. This award-winning shot was done entirely practically, and Tony mentioned that the prosthetic even malfunctioned and split in the wrong direction in the middle of the take, but somehow it looked better that way. When you watch the scene, it looks perfect, which clearly illustrates that when it comes to practical effects, imperfection is way more realistic and therefore way more effective. Mistakes can be a good thing. Nothing in nature is ever perfect or symmetrical, so if your effects don't look perfect, it adds to both the charm and the realism. This actually goes for multiple art forms, by the way. So embrace mistakes and be receptive to these happy accidents as they can make your movies even better. Number four, 
stop stressing. Tony made a very interesting point about how if he could have done the entire movie over again, he would have enjoyed it more and he would have worried less. Of course, when making a movie, you have to think through every possible thing that can go wrong. See point number one. And it goes without saying that you have to deal with a lot of stressful situations on set. But as Tony says, you can waste so much time and energy worrying or instead try to focus that energy on solving problems ahead of time or focus that energy just on being grateful for the opportunity that you have right in front you. Not to get too metaphysical, but gratitude is the one emotion that makes you incapable of feeling fear or anger. These are the most destructive emotions that a director can possibly feel on set. So do what you can do to transcend your natural proclivity to worry. But furthermore, enjoy the process. You're making a movie, you neurotic fuck. You should be overjoyed. Allow yourself to feel that joy and feel that pride, but don't get cocky or sloppy. Anyway, guys, Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. <laughs>